Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we are back for episode 55 of Gov Actually, and we can talk a little bit about that number. But um, did you see? Did you see the um, the musical Hamilton? Did you did you see it live, or did you see it on on screen? Did, you know, did I see it? I'm obsessed with it. I've seen it live. Right. I got Disney Plus. I read the book. Yeah, you're probably wondering where I'm going with this, but you remember Thomas Jefferson shows up from France and and has that incredible entry, you know, what, line. Did, I miss? what did I miss? What yeah. did I, miss? Yeah. yeah. So our, our last episode was, was, was recorded back in February of 2022, February of this year. And it is now, uh, we're, we're head, we're heading to the, um, uh, back right. half of, of April. And, um, I, I consider May as we get into May is the Thursday of months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, anyway <laughs> yeah i i think i think a little more highly of it than that but i see what you're saying um and so th- it, the world is very very different and so uh we we thought we needed to bring in a, a particular guest to to talk about how much the world has changed and and how the government uh thinks about that and so i'd like i'd like you to introduce our guest because he's also a colleague of yours yeah so troy thomas is uh so he is one of my favorite people in all of Washington. And what's so interesting about Troy is we worked in the same building for many years and didn't know each other, uh, which is, you know, you know, we worked in the Eisenhower building, which is this massive giant building and you walk by people all the time. And I probably walked by Troy a hundred times and had no idea I was walking by him. And now uh, I, I, I see and, and have the pleasure and real honor of working with Troy every day. Um, so Troy is currently uh, at BCG as a managing director and partner, focuses a lot on uh, defense and security topics for us. Um, prior to joining uh, BCG, uh, Troy was in the White House. And from 2013 to 2017, as I mentioned, wandering the halls of the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, he was on the National Security Council. He was special assistant to the president, <clears throat> to President Obama for national security affairs. But he also served as senior director for defense policy, director for strategic planning. He served as a senior advisor to two different chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the director of the Chairman's Action Group for General Martin Dempsey. He's also a veteran, uh, served, uh, I think, over 20 years in the Air Force, uh, retiring as a colonel, uh, served in in Asia and the Middle East. Uh, Just an incredible career of service. Um, and um, I know this is going to sound trite, but truly one of the nicest people in, in D.C. Um, so welcome, Troy. Well, thank you, Danny. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> I'm very humbled by the introduction and, and even more so to be on this, uh, on this pro- program for the first time. Quite the fan and episode 55. So that's, uh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, it's our uh, Sammy Hagar episode. Um, yeah, Google that. I saw him in concert before oh. he joined Van Halen. That dates me at all. <laughs> you saw Sammy Hagar pre-Van Halen. 
pre-Van Halen, yeah. Right. Well, now I have good office fodder for uh, for for roasting you at some event coming. Up. <laughs> um, no, I I'm a big Hagar fan and and love love the Van Halen version of Hagar. Although I always will prefer David Lee Roth uh, Van Halen. But that's a different podcast, Dan, that you and I are planning. <laughs> Oh but yes, that one. that will be our breakout podcast right there. <laughs> that one. Yeah, the 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 argue point counterpoint: Hagar Van Halen versus David Lee Roth Van Halen. Um, yeah. So, so Troy, um, the way Dan introduced things with the "What did I miss?" You know, right now, you know, making you know, taking the conversation to a more sober place. You know, we are in a very dangerous uh, place for the world. Uh, there's a war. In, in Eastern Europe, um, uh, Putin and Russia have invaded Ukraine. Um, it's 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 an enormous moment uh, in international affairs, in national security. Um, it, it's the type of thing that that turns everything upside down if you're inside government working on these issues. Like one day, y- you have to throw everything out your priorities, your strategy, your, your daily calendar, everything changes in a moment like this. And there's a lot of peace parts to government that are involved in, in our national security apparatus. And what we want you to do is use your expertise to help us unpack when something like this happens, when there's a, an outbreak of war, a humanitarian crisis, refugee crisis that, that's brought on by the war, all the potential complex issues that go around it, how, how does the national security apparatus move into, you know, into a position where it can advise the president and other key officials, and I assume members of Congress as well, on, on what the United States of America needs to do in this moment um, to, uh, to, to balance all the various things, America's interests, the world's interests, et cetera. So let's, start with your alumni place, the National Security Council, because I don't think a lot of people really understand, because I think people get that confused with the National Security Agency. So can you give us a little bit of a primer on the National Security Council and how that's different than the National Security Agency? Yeah, absolutely. And allow me to just reinforce a key point here. The the, the war in Ukraine is sort of an exclamation point on kind of what I would argue is a, is a key turning point in the post-Cold War world um, as we move away from a, an era of globalization to this return to very uh, significant and dangerous uh, you know, major power rivalry, if not, uh, not conflict. And this is a moment when the National Security Council really has to rise to the occasion because its fundamental responsibility is to enable good decision-making that takes into account all of the equities, perspectives, capabilities of of our federal government. And does that in a way that enables the President of the United States who has this executive authority to make these decisions in consultation with Congress um, to make the best decisions possible. And these these are not problems to be solved. These are dilemmas national security dilemmas that have to be managed. And there are rarely good choices. So at its best, the National Security Council's role as an, as an, as an organization within the executive office of the president 
is to facilitate the best possible decision-making. And then once those decisions are made is to orchestrate the implementation. And, is, and they're advising directly to the president or do they also advise the secretary of defense? Like, like who, who is understood that everybody in, in the executive branch ultimately reports up to the president. But is the National Security Council also telling uh, the Secretary of Defense their input as well? No, the, the National Security Council's responsibility is to make sure all of those different perspectives to include those of the Secretary of Defense and of members of the Department of Defense get integrated into the decision-making process. Now, there is a National Security Advisor, right? The National Security Advisor today is Jake Sullivan, uh, uh, who's very capable. I had the honor of working with Ambassador Susan Rice. They are expected to provide the President of the United States with their own advice on these matters. The National Security staff will, you know, have perspectives that they will share with the National Security Advisor. But at the end of the day, the National Security Council's job is to make sure all of the cabinet members that are part of the national security process, and it's not just DOD and State Department, but it's other agencies like Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, everybody that has a role to play in this managing this crisis, um, that their voice is heard, their perspective is taken on board and is integrated in a way that the President of the United States has real options to consider. So just I wanna make sure I understand the structure. You mentioned Jake Sullivan as the National Security Advisor. Does he lead the National Security Council? Is he the head of it? He is. He is the head of the National Security Council, and he has two deputies. Okay, One, so and then there's staff, right? And there's staff, yep. There's council, I assume. The Who's council is the decision-making forums. It's And there's remarkable, I think what's important about the National Security Council is that there is remarkable continuity in the structure and the decision-making process across administrations. Now, at the end of the day, how the National Security Council operates and its role in the decision-making process is fundamentally a function of the way the president makes choices. If a president is highly deliberative, then a National Security Council will be very process-driven. Um, if a president is not highly deliberative, then it, it may, you know, it, it, it may be providing information to the president, but it may not be as heavily process-driven. What, what, what is, is the staff? It's, a, it's, a, it's an organization and it's a staff and it's organized around regions and functions. What, is, what does process driven look like? What does that mean? It's a, it's a tiered decision-making process. The National Security Council is actually the body that the President of the United States chairs with other members of the National Security Cabinet, if you will. Some are statutory members like the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State. Some are um, determined by the president, like the UN, the, the United Nations ambassador. When the president convenes those people, often in the situation room to deliberate on a foreign policy issue, that is the National Security Council coming together. The National Security Council staff, which is often called just the National Security Council for short, is that body that works for the National Security Officer that is intended to facilitate that meeting. But you don't just go straight to that meeting, Dan. It's like there's tiers and there's, and it's, it's structured this way across administrations. There is a principals meeting, which is one level below, which is when the cabinet secretaries get together and deliberate on the options so that when they meet with the president, 
they've thought through the options and they have a perspective and a recommendation. And there's a level below that called deputies. And then there's a level below that at the, uh, what would be at the assistant secretary level, essentially. Um, it goes by various names. In my time, it's called the interagency uh, uh, policy committee. And that's the working level at which all of the different ideas are brought together and formed into options that tear up. The speed at which that happens varies by the topic and the, uh, the urgency. So that process can get collapsed and move very quickly in the context of a crisis like we're seeing in Ukraine. So is the National Security Council policy focused, in other words, versus military? Like uh, uh, the issue the National Security Council would focus on more would be what is our position with going into NATO uh, discussions to in terms of what we're going to say and do with respect to uh, the invasion versus That's right. this type of cruise missile or this type of, of, of weapons platform for this event. It, exactly. At, you know, at its best, the National Security Council is supposed to be uh, providing the president with, a, with options and recommendations on how the United States what the United States policy should be toward a crisis, toward a particular country. And um, it brings everybody together. So it is, it, national security has taken on a very broad definition. So matters of climate and health security and cybersecurity all get managed by the National Security Council to facilitate decision-making. Even if they have heavy economic components, they, it's, not, it's not a military, decision-making process. It is a broadly defined national security decision-making process. Quick tangent, because as I asked my question about NATO, it made me realize that there is a US ambassador to NATO, but you didn't mention that individual when you said everyone comes together. Is that person not part of the, the, the you, know, you know, the heads of the five families, if you will, that come together to advise the president? Well, the, the National Security Council itself that the president convenes tends to be, you know, the heads of the agencies, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State. And so ambassadors, while very important, are not at that level within our sort of national security apparatus. But at those lower levels, at the deputies level often, but certainly at even the level below that, someone like our ambassador to NATO will be part of those meetings and be able to provide their perspective. But as the National Security Council, I would look to the State Department to determine which members of the State Department, of the State Department staff here in Washington, DC, or which ambassadors globally ought to be part of the meeting. But for example, when in 2014, when we were managing a not dissimilar crisis with the Russian invasion of Crimea, the US ambassador to uh, Russia um, would actually even join some of the, the National Security Council meetings with the president. What, what is the resting state of the, of the National Security Council when you're, or is, is there one? Is there always something happening that's, that's got it <laughs> popping like popcorn or is, it, or is there ever a time when it's kind of like, you know, this is the normal, like um, the normal state, the whole state? The, the resting state is one of intense activity all the time. And I would say really, in, it's like two gears, Dan. There, is, there are always crises in the world 
that require the National Security Council to convene all of the relevant stakeholders across government to figure out what to do. There is no issue in the world that can, that involves national security that can like just be handled alone or should be handled alone necessarily by the Department of Defense. That's of a strategic nature. I'm not talking about a small, you know, small crisis that it could be handled by a, an embassy team in a country. Um, so they're always convening to manage the the crises of of the of the day. Um, but at the same time, they have a responsibility to be strategic. So in the context of what's happening in Ukraine right now, and, and thinking back to 2014, when we had a similar uh, crisis of uh, um, less strategic scale than now, but nonetheless, we were that, that body, particularly at the deputies level, which is a very much as like a work, the workhorse of the NSC, was meeting a couple times a week to manage the crisis. And then there was another group at a lower level that was thinking about the long-term strategic implications of this and the implications for U.S. national security interests and what it meant in terms of our broader strategy toward NATO or toward Russia. And these two things are moving at the same time. And the strategic body will raise questions up to the National Security Council on a less frequent basis. But you have to be doing two at the same both at the same time, handling the emergent issue, but being deliberative about the future. What about um, the intelligence community? So I, I think people sometimes get confused between the National Security Council right. and the security agency. You've got the CIA, you've got you know all these, what, what are sometimes referred to as the three letter agencies that right. are doing secret covert stuff. Yeah, That's I love that question. I love that question. I also used to work at the National Security Agency, so um, they are very different. The National Security Agency is one member of an 18-member intelligence community. It's a very important member because it largely helps with our, um, you know, collecting intelligence that is encrypted and in communications. Um, 18 members? Some are quite, some are quite small, like the Department of Intelligence and Research, the State Department is a member. Mm -hmm. The newest member is the uh, intelligence component of the Space Force. So each oh. of the military services, the CIA is a member. Some are, you know, some of these three-letter agencies, you say, Danny, are, are probably more strategic and consequential than others. National Security Agency, when it comes to what we call signals intelligence, CIA, when it comes to human intelligence, um, and the, for example, the National Reconnaissance Office when it comes to space-based intelligence. But there are 18 members. And Troy could uh, could name all 18 members for you. Not going to. But if, if he told you that, he'd have to kill you. So there you go. It's, it's up to you. But after 9-11, we created um, the, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Um, who That office is now held by uh, Avril Haynes, who um, was a Deputy National Security Advisor when I was at the NSC. And she has a responsibility to sort of orchestrate that enterprise. And the college representative, by the way. I, I needed to get that in there. What's she that? Was, she was one year behind me in college. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she was tutoring you though, Dan. <laughs> Absolutely. She worked, she worked at a um, she worked at a an auto mechanics garage. In, in Hyde Park, she, that was like her side hustle, was actually fixing cars. Yeah, I think she used to also have a bookstore in Baltimore. 
Right. Of, of, all, of all things. She's a, she's a fascinating character. Anyway. Yeah. Well, she used to also be deputy of the CIA. Typically, when the president convenes the National Security Council, and also at that level below I talked about before, principles, the intelligence community is represented there. It's represented by the director of national intelligence herself or her deputy. And usually there's someone there from the Central Intelligence Agency. And almost all of these meetings start by them giving sort of a context setting, like what's going on. All right, so that we have our primer. We're gonna yeah. take a break. And when we come back, we're gonna get into the current situation in, in Russia and Ukraine and, uh, and dive into this very, very dangerous, challenging uh, situation. So uh, after the break, thanks. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, we're back. Um, and, and Troy, uh, we're going to go from the org chart now to the, to the actual situation. Um, and in the case of uh, the Russian attack of Ukraine, um, am I right that there that there was something kind of different about the way the intelligence about the the intention of Russia launching this attack this attack was was shared? Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you have some perspectives, both from from your world, your time in the world of the intelligence community, as well as your time in the the NSC? You, you're right to uh, sense that there was there was something different about it. I, I don't know that anybody's called it this, but I, I viewed it as a strategy of preemptive transparency, right? We are in an environment, a social media environment where information is proliferating, a disinformation environment at which the Russian government has been, been skilled. Um, and we are trying to mobilize both Europe and international opinion to make sure that we are prepared to respond to what it looked like Russia was going to do. And I think that there was a very deliberate strategy on the part of the, the president of the National Security Council to declassify intelligence, to share intelligence, to leverage the remarkable transparency that commercial capabilities can provide like satellite imaging, to get ahead of the narrative, to mobilize the mobilize folks and, and really sort of preemptively combat the disinformation that you could expect to be coming out of uh, out of Russia. So yeah, I think it was very unique in that regard. And it's Europe, and so it also garnered the kind of attention. And there was a, a degree of access to Ukraine as well that you just don't have that degree of attention and access in conflict zones like Syria, where Russia has been fighting for the last uh, you know, eight to 10 years, or in Afghanistan or Iraq, where we have been at war in the past, recent past. Troy, when you first started the conversation uh, earlier in the, in the podcast, you, I, I think you were hinting at the fact that this is a, a clear inflection point post-Cold War. Like, how big is this moment as you think about, you know, you've been in government uh, circles and working in this way for decades and have seen, you know, a lot of different turbulence. Um, can you place this moment in context in terms of its uh, 
importance, its risks, um, and how delicate this issue is for the president and his team to, to manage and navigate? I, I can try. You know, I, I would say it's, it's, it's strategic implications rival any, you know, event in our, in our lifetimes. You know, I mean, when you, know, you think about some of the big sort of national security inflection points in our lifetimes, whether that's the Vietnam War from a US perspective, the end of the Cold War, um, or the post 9-11 global war on terrorism. Like this to me is a, is a, there has been a steady erosion of what we would call the post-World War II liberal international order, an erosion being led by authoritarian regimes to undermine sort of these norms and rules of the road that we want to advance that reflect our values and interests. This is like a, uh, this, is, this is definitely an exclamation point that uh, Russia in particular, but potentially the Chinese um, have a different vision for the future and are willing to not just uh, take, you know, subversive action or incremental action, whether that's, you know, putting, militarizing the South China Sea or engaging what was called sort of gray zone or hybrid or propaganda wars, but actually take military action to change, to challenge that post-World War II and post-Cold War international order. I would also say that you're right to say that this is, this is dangerous and risky. The stakes are very high. You know, Russia has, you know, in just recent days, deliberately sort of rattled uh, sabers using nuclear weapons, which is not something that they have done in such a public way. Um, in, in, you know, that I, that I can remember. So the stakes are high. The, the future of, you know, the liberal international order is at stake. And um, it fundamentally challenges all of our assumptions about our ability to integrate Russia as a responsible partner into that order. And, uh, you know, challenges, you, you see it in Europe, it challenges everybody's assumptions about defense and security and how economic development is going to, and interdependence is going to evolve. And I assume it's correct. Is that all? <laughs> yeah, and more. <laughs> it, oh, okay. Sobering. You know, the fact that Russia is a nuclear power, um, I, I, I mean, I'm just testing my own intuition on this, is that it takes certain options potentially off the table or limits options that you can take to, uh, to deal with a military incursion, right? Because, you know, because you know that there's this risk out there you, you, you pray and hope that it is extraordinarily remote, but there are maybe steps on the continuum that can, can turn that risk from remote to less remote. So I would imagine that one of the key roles going back to the National Security Council is to help the president and Congress ultimately as well calibrate if we take these actions, this is how the risk of, uh, of, of, of of Putin and Russia using their nuclear arsenal changes. And obviously any increase in that probability is, uh, is, is, is you know, not just cataclysmic, but totally shapes the policy decisions that you make. I mean, that's my intuition, but-, no, but it, it's, it, Your intuition is, uh, is spot on. It, it does, it, it, it overshadows the dynamic. It affects how you manage escalation. And it informs where the president of the United States draws certain lines, like being very clear that we do not have a policy of regime change in Russia. Why do we have to be so sort of 
overt about that because we know that a circumstances are which nuclear weapons might be used is if Russia felt there was an existential threat to, uh, to the country and potentially even to the government. And so there's some uncertainties there that are by design on the part of, of President Putin that we have to very carefully manage. So yeah, that's the, that, how do you advance your national security objectives? How do you, you know, advance our interests in Ukraine and ultimately lead to a resolution of this conflict that ends the tragedy for Ukrainian people? Uh, in a way that does not escalate into uh, any type of nuclear confrontation. Yeah, but that's, not... that's even less likely than the, the risk of just Russia using its more tactical nuclear weapons in the context of well, the, the That's what itself. I was going to ask. It's not just nuclear weapons. It's the type and flavor and scale of the nuclear weapons. And I know that the, the Russians have a have a broader range of, of weapons, particularly at the tactical level, which is a, if it's if it's possible to describe this, it's a small nuclear weapon. It's, it is. It's, a, it's called. It's a small. It's a tactical nuclear weapon. It's designed to, you know, destroy major, you know, installations and cities. Um, and they have a doctrine. And they, if you monitor their exercises, they have a. They practice like uh, under the circumstances in which they might use that that, mm. that weapon. I would say that. Um, so far, they have shown restraint, uh, even though they have had some of their, apparently had some of their military and strategic objectives thwarted mm -hmm. by the heroic resistance of the Ukrainian people, particularly in Kiev. They did not choose to use a tactical weapon to take Kiev. Now, <laughs> where you are using them, uh, most of the, uh, the fallout uh, and some of the implications for those weapons are back onto Russia. Back so on the, right. That's an important consideration. When you are right. fighting to the West, the fallout comes back to the East or when you're, mm. yeah, it comes back to the East. And so, um, but it's, it's, it's a very dangerous situation. And to Danny, your point, like it's gotta be part of the calculations every time. And are there, how does the, how does the diplomatic aspects of this or the, are there, how, how does this work? I mean, it's not just, the United States having these conversations there you've you've got to be engaging with the international with with international partners I imagine there are even conversations happening with with Russia well there certainly are and you've seen quite a few European leaders try to be that bridge whether before the crisis or in its early days the president of France or more recently I believe the, the leader of, of, of Austria Austria right I mean, there's, there are, there's open channels and dialogue. There always have been. So even though you may not see the President of the United States and President Putin meeting, um, I would have to believe, because it's been past practice, that there are lower levels within the US government uh, having interactions with the, the Russian government, primarily probably through the Secretary of State and the Foreign Minister. But then um, European countries are also doing their own outreach trying to defuse the crisis. And we're supportive of all of that. You know, the more channels of dialogue to try and find a resolution, the better. The challenge with uh, with with um, with NATO is that there's you know nearly 30 countries in NATO, and you want to try and get everybody aligned on on uh, how to move that uh, peace process forward. Not that there's a peace process right now, but eventually and hopefully there will be. One of one of the critiques after 9/11 was that there was a crisis of creativity uh, of imagination in our intelligence community. Do you think, do you think people had imagined um, 
this kind of this kind of enhanced belligerence in that part of the world and have have thought about the implications or are we kind of responding? No, I think this is something we believe could be very well, very much a possibility. Um, there has been a, a strategic shift in Russia, particularly in the last decade, um, even more than a decade, let's say 15 years, um, to really asserting itself militarily on its perimeter in, in non-NATO countries and essentially running the same playbook. You know, the playbook they ran in, the military playbook they ran in Chechnya, they, you know, they've, they've run uh, versions of that in Georgia. They ran a version of that in the Ukraine in, in 2014. And here we are eight years later seeing the same, seeing the same playbook. I, I think we, we anticipated it. I, I will confess that I, I think we, we seem to have overestimated the Russian military's capability. Um, I think that's worthy of like, like going back and taking a look at um, and maybe underestimating the U Ukraine's ability to resist the, the Russian military. Um, that's the intelligence committee's job is to estimate that, that threat and its capability. And we may have, we may or may have not gotten that wrong. I, I think that'd be worth looking into. You know, it's interesting um, to start thinking about potential end game scenarios here. Um, and, you know, I, again, putting on my, my layperson's hat, you know, I analyze this in a, in a very similar way that you'd analyze any kind of human negotiation game theory, which is like, like in order for the war to end and end in a, in a, in a, in a, in a potentially positive way, it's like you have to give Putin some type of win or some type of safe fate. Like th there's a world in which the, the end of the war happens where Ukraine maintains its, its autonomy, its independence. Zelensky is still the head of the, of the nation. Um, but then Putin can claim some type of victory and maybe that's what's necessary. Again, am I thinking about that right? Or is that too naive and too hopeful? I, I think there, there's certainly a a logic and a sensibility the way you're thinking about it when when you know most conflicts do achieve some sort of stalemate or resolution um it is rarely because one party of the conflict has been fully defeated i mean you have to go way back to that like that's a that's a world war ii type type scenario or you know maybe even arguably like iraq in the iraq war gulf war of 1991 like they're, they're just thoroughly defeated and they they withdraw um, in this case, I don't think there's a scenario in which Russia is thoroughly defeated, nor where Russia is, you know, is victorious. So there will be some, at some point, the energy in the conflict will stabilize and lines will start to be drawn in the, in, in the, in the, the, the east and southeast of, of Ukraine, where there's Russian control over over more territory than it had when it started, um, you know, and it, it, it'll settle into that. I would, I would think, um, and and there will be some negotiations around what that looks like. If you lift up a little, that's where I think you can actually say Russia lost, because Ukraine will never again have the Ukrainian people have any interest in a closer association with Russia as a consequence of this. And Europe and NATO is more united 
than ever. And the prospects for a Russian a integration of Russia as a responsible member of the international system into that international system are dead for now. And to me, we all lose in a way, but Russia loses most. Yeah, and I was trying to come up with an end game that didn't have the worst case, you know, scenario um, and even a bad case scenario is just like this dread, like you mentioned Vietnam, like it just, or Russia and Afghanistan, like it just drags on. And the extent of the humanitarian damage is, uh, is extended um, in, into, into years, which is, you know, obviously the nuclear um, scenario is by far the worst case. But this is also terrible, this idea that this could go on for years and years. And it, it will, it will, Danny. I mean, I think it's just re worth remembering that Russian-backed separatists and Ukrainian forces have been standing off in the Donbass and fighting each other for eight years with humanitarian consequences. Where that line is drawn will be different now and more of that territory will likely be under Russian control. Um, but I think like the, the scenario that seems most plausible to me is that you return to that dynamic and it drags for, for many years, for many what, years. What's, diff what's different about a, an Afghanistan or Vietnam, you know, is the proximity. I mean, this, this country is adjoining the aggressor country. The, you know, in, in these other instances, it was always kind of like half a world away this is right next door. This is, you know, is, and is, is there other examples? I mean, I can't really think of other examples. Well, the other examples of in recent time are, are all Russian, right? It's Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Georgia where Russian troops occupy part of Georgian, you know, Georgian territory. It's Crimea for the last eight years. It's now, right. you know, but, it, enables, it enables Russia to sustain a kind of occupation Mm -hmm. and slowly drive integration into, uh, uh, you know, drive greater, greater integration. But you do see, as, as Danny, uh, uh, you, you do see other cases around the world, like Saudi Arabia and Yemen, where the, the mm -hmm. proximity actually can serve to, like, drain the conflict out, because in a way, it's easier to sustain. Your lines of logistics are not so long. It's, right. it's close to home. You're feeling the conflict, and that reinforces the the um the intensity i wanted to we haven't mentioned sanctions yet you know and the idea that you know sanctions are uh, are are one of the obviously the major lever the economic sanctions you know you talk about i have two questions really first is like going back to the the first part of the podcast is the national security council i assume kind of helping think through the various alternatives for the types of sanctions that will, you know, balance, you know, trying to incentivize peace without economically disrupting other parts of the of the world. Is that a fair a fair conclusion? Yeah, it, it's exactly their responsibility is to examine all of the sanctions options, weigh their efficacy, their impact judge the extent to which you need other countries to follow suit for it to be effective and then make recommendations about if which and when sanct different sanctions should be should be implemented so my other question is is when you concluded earlier that 
that this goes on for years and years. Can, can Russia sustain a 5, 10, 15 year incursion with the current sanctions uh, that they're under? Or, or at some point, does a concession, uh, does something have to break? Because, because it's like, it's, it, it can't sustain for that long. I, you know, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on, on sanctions, but there are very few historical examples where they have really compelled the country to change its behavior, like South Africa um, around apartheid. And what you see over and over again is that different economies are able to largely sanction-proof their economy and survive despite really intense sanctions. Think of North, North Korea. Um, and Russia Ru does have oil. Which is Russia will Russia will suffer. Like Russia needs to export its oil, its other commodities, lumber. I mean, sanctions will impose a significant cost on the country and the people of Russia. Um, and the fact, though, is that most of the world is not sanctioning Russia today. Right. This is a the the sanctions are coming from Europe and the United States and some of our allies and partners in in the Asia Pacific region, like Australia and Japan large portions of the world. In fact, the majority of the world's population is not engaged in any kind of economic sanction or even verbal condemnation of Russia's behavior. So I think they can survive, but they'll pay a price. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the news that I consume seems to feel like the sanctions are, are really, really kind of I don't know what the right terminology, painful, bleeding dry, the whole thing, you know? Um, and, um, but, but you're, they will cripple the economy. Yeah, of the economy. It, it's going to be painful, though. I mean, either way, it's going to be painful on the Russian people and obviously painful to the extent the incursion uh, keeps going. But, um, but Dan, can... we're coming up on time, Dan. So why don't you, uh, you want to give your last shot? No, don't give away your last shot, uh, as Hamilton would say. <laughs> Back to him. We, we end where we started. Um, but I also think it's very interesting on the sanction front how quickly uh, Russia, which had not been integrated into uh, the global economy, has been integrated to the point that the global economy is kind of reliant on its integration for um, raw materials, for, for energy, um, and uh, yeah, so there's, I, I think that there's a huge reverberations. I'm curious, and maybe this is the worst way, place to end, but I, I can't help but think like, what are the, what are the things that you're nervous about um, that, that, you know, that can happen in a situation like this when, when two of the world's biggest powers are kind of locked in a, you know, a, a entirely, you know, focused draining um, effort such as this, it seems like it's a, a, a shadow under which much mischief could take place. I, I worry about two things, mostly in the near term. One is some form of miscalculation that leads to escalation, whether that is, you know, inadvertently um, U.S. or Russian forces coming into contact, maybe not even in Ukraine, potentially in another area, like in Syria or something like that, uh, leading to some more miscalculation escalation. The other is, uh, I, I think the worst is still ahead for the Ukrainian people. And I don't think, you know, we've talked a lot about the sort of the geopolitics of this, but the Ukrainian people 
um, are suffering and the worst is, is yet to come. More, more strategically, I, I, I worry that uh, we are entering into a new era where we have these large regional blocks and we, we enter a new world of sort of democracies versus authoritarian regimes that drives a security dilemma and spending on the military that comes at the expense of some of our other really important goals like our own economic development or the fight against climate change. All right, Troy, my last question. <laughs> um, going back to uh, the, the way government works on this, I, I want you to just touch on Congress for a moment. And, you know, when you have a crisis, like they, we know how political the world is, right? People like, like Mitch McConnell is going to get up there and be very, and, 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 and Kevin McCarthy, and they're going to say all these negative things about Biden. And, and then Biden will complain about the Republicans. And, but when you have a crisis like this, is there a, um, a behind the scenes, less political rolling up sleeves to really kind of get into the, the substantive content of the crisis separate from the politics? Or does Congress really just allow the executive branch to do its thing? Um, and, and there isn't kind of like a substantive behind the scenes engagement. There, there should be, and I believe often is, um, a substantive engagement, a, an ongoing dialogue between the White House and the State Department with the key congressional committees, foreign affairs, uh, armed services um, that are have responsibility for, you know, basically funding the Department of Defense, the State Department, and those sorts of things. That that dialogue is going on, and there's consultations there. There is also real domestic implications of conflicts like this, and so Congress plays a particularly important role there, where some of the moves that need to be made with regard to the economy um, and also with regard to sanctions need congressional support. So that dialogue has to occur. I would I would say it's probably not always as good as it should be. Uh, but I think we're in a moment now where you see broad alignment and the debate is really about like, are we being tough enough? Uh, not whether or not, not whether we should be tough, but whether are we being tough enough? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, reflecting that my hope, I, and Dan and I talk a lot about trust in government and we try to get away from the politics, but, but there's a hope that, 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 that when the you know what is hitting the fan, <laughs> for this country and for the world, that, that there's a room somewhere uh, that, um, that, that politics is thrown out the door and the people that have been entrusted to lead the country get together and, and, and strategize. And then they can come out and you know, go on MSNBC and Fox News and complain about each other, but, but they're making decisions like with a common purpose. And maybe that's, Pollyannish, um, but I would think that a moment like this might might be where some of that happens. It 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 should be, and it's certainly necessary. Yeah. I don't know where that room is. I don't know if it's the Roosevelt Room or it's over in the Rayburn Building. But I dare I, I say dare <laughs> I say it's the room where it happens. It's well, there you go. One last um, um, good, aren't I? I'll leave it there. Um, and anyways, that room, we're not allowed to discuss the the presence, the the, the existence or location of that room on this on this podcast. So uh, Troy, thank you so much. It was really great meeting you. And I really appreciate your perspectives, um, giving us a lot to think about. And Danny, it's always, 
always good to hang out with you. Awesome. Thanks, Troy. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to join this illustrious podcast.